everyone, this is Philip, and he is a classmate of mine at Wharton. And we're just gonna be discussing a little bit about his career and why he decided to attend Penn and hopefully have a pretty wide ranging conversation. Um, so yeah, Philip, can you just start off by introducing yourself and kind of giving everyone in the audience, our, our viewers, a bit about your background? Yeah, for sure. Hey everyone, my name is Philip. I'm originally from Long Island, New York. Um, I ended up going to Wake Forest University for my undergrad and did a one-year master's program at the University of Virginia, um, where um, I really was able to get a master's in commerce and get a better sense of business. And just to backtrack a little bit, one of the reasons why I wanted to get that master's degree was I actually co-ran a business in my undergrad, which mm. was called Wake Wash. Um, it's a laundry delivery service that washed, fold, and saran wrapped people's clothes and delivered it to them in 48 hours, which really, you know, sparked my interest in not only business, but also getting a better sense of operations, supply chains, human capital, and a whole host of other topics. Through that, um, you know, degree at Wake, as well as the one at UVA, I was able to land a job in Nashville, Tennessee, where I spent the last five years prior to coming to Philadelphia. Um, first working at the university endowment um, for Vanderbilt and then moving to a private equity firm as well as uh, my final year being at a consulting firm in their strategy and performance practice. Awesome. And so interesting that you, to hear that you worked on uh, Wake Wash, your uh, kind of laundry service in a college, because mm -hmm. I think personally, I've always wanted to like start a business in college, but I never could get an idea of like what to even start. So can you tell us about like how that idea formed and kind of where you took it to? I think a lot of people, a lot of our viewers might be kind of interested in starting their own businesses. Yeah, for sure. So candidly, we didn't completely come up with the idea ourselves. It was already a very small business on campus that we took over after those individuals graduated. Mm -hmm. um, but what we did was really create an unlock and figuring out, okay, we're not actually selling to the students on campus. We're really selling to the parents. So what that meant was coming to freshman orientation and telling uh, you know, the parents of freshmen and uh, other uh, classmates like, hey, we know that Ben might be a little bit lazy with doing his own laundry, <laughs> even though there's free washers and dryers in every dormitory at Wake, but he might wanna bring his clothes back for you, mom and dad to do over fall break, Thanksgiving, et cetera. And you don't want that. You want to, as we like to say, dress for success um, by having a service where we pick it up, we'll wash it, fold it, give it back to them in 48 hours, and make sure that the process is pretty seamless, as well as doing laundry. Um, we also did alterations and dry cleaning for an extra cost. Mm. And how was it managing that plus all of the schoolwork? Was it, were there ever times where you even like working more on wake wash versus school? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the best part about, uh, you know, working on Wake Wash during school was we had a minor um, in the entrepreneurship and social enterprise um, uh, department where I took classes that primarily focused on what are some day to day challenges of my business. Mm. So luckily, I was able to get a couple of grades while running Wake Wash because the classes were about, you know, some people in our you know university that own small businesses whether it be, okay, how do we you know, fill this gap in workers where we need people to pick up the bags? How do we negotiate some of the contracts with the uh, middleman that's really doing the laundry themselves and all of these type of issues? I never actually did the literal laundry myself. <laughs> 
But you know how to do laundry now. I do. I do. I've all, yes. If anyone needs any help doing laundry or dry cleaning, I am uh, your guy. Sounds good. So, so you seem, uh, after selling your, you said you sold your business. Yeah, right? I so, sold my business. Um, so after that, you worked at Vanderbilt after college uh, in their endowment fund. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, after after I did the one-year program at UVA. Got it. Okay. So then in the endowment fund, can you kind of go over what your responsibilities were and any kind of pleasant surprises at the job that really stand out to you? Sure. So uh, after finishing up the uh, one-year program at UVA, um, I really felt like I wanted to do something in the financial world. And candidly, I didn't know too much about endowments when applying for these jobs, but um, they really sold me on the idea that you can really learn the whole spectrum of the financial world and get a lot of you know different insights that you might not get doing investment banking or you're working on financial models all the time and not really being in these uh, meetings. So I joined the private team, which focused on venture capital, private equity and real assets, which was split between natural resources and real estate. Mm. Um, So my day to day uh, jobs was, um, you know, looking at potential opportunities at the fund level. So we weren't making individual investments into companies, but more the private equity funds and venture capital funds themselves, Um, looking at our portfolio to see how it's progressing, going to, you know, different AGMs or um, annual meetings for our different managers as well as you know, taking notes on uh, different things that's happening in the world, sending it to uh, my bosses, as well as writing uh, some investment memos that would eventually be sent to our investment committee. Um, but to your question about what really pleasantly surprised me was just the amount of access I was able to get as you know a young gun coming out of school. Mm. I was able to speak to people that are literal billionaires or uh, Joe Montana or other you know cool people that wouldn't often give the time of day to someone in their early 20s. But because Vanderbilt's endowment invested in their groups or looked at investing, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars, Mm. I would go into meetings where my voice was really heard, but also sometimes even lead the meetings themselves. Mm. Any cool stories for many of the meetings with like the billionaires, Joe Montana, like anyone? Um, Definitely there was a funny story where, you know, one person who was extremely wealthy was uh, complaining about the the traffic in uh, New York City. And Mm. he talked about, well, you know, I don't understand why people are so upset. You know, New York traffic isn't too bad. And obviously everyone else around the room disagreed. So someone asked, well, what what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, How do you get around? And he said, by helicopter. (laughs) So it's, you know, traffic's not too bad in any city if you get around by helicopter. So sometimes there's a little bit of disconnect, but, uh, Oftentimes, it's just really interesting to hear people's perspectives on so many wide ranging industries and getting really deep about, you know, their specific uh, area of focus. Mm. And with these investors and kind of wealthy individuals that you interacted with a lot, do you feel like, you know, because I think on the the outside, people might think that they might be really full of themselves or be, I I don't know, like there might be all these kind of like negative Mm. stereotypes. But do you think that there were any positive kind of like similarities or common denominators that a lot of them have or had? Or were there any particular attributes that you found from these people that you worked with that, um, you know, kind of like were successful in some way? Was there anything that stood out to you with all of those clients? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, in anything you do, there'll be people that, you know, are a little uh, standoffish or difficult to work with. 
But I think even, you know, between those people and the really nice people that I learned a lot about uh, and from, um, I think they're just really passionate about what they work in, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what our philosophy was is to figure out, you know, usually earlier stage managers, maybe a fund two or three, where there's a little bit of a track record, but they're still kind of having a chip on their shoulder. They're still hungry, but also are, you know, very specific in the area that they're focusing in, whether it be, okay, I only want to do software investing, um, or I only want to focus on, you know, esoteric real estate ideas where they've just become a master of their craft and a pretty limited scope. But, you know, that makes them a big fish in a small pond mm -hmm. rather than, say, um, a generalist fund that, you know, invests in everything between, you know, manufacturing and software um, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. Got it. And now actually switching gears a little bit, going more into your private equity mm -hmm. side. Um, can you tell us why you made that transition and how is that transition going from basically being a fund where you may have received money from funds like private equity funds? We, invest, we invested in the private, into private equity yes. funds and then now you actually joined one. Mm -hmm. So how is that transition and what kind of role did you play? Yeah. So um, I was really blessed that during my time at Vanderbilt, uh, it was a three year analyst program where they expect you to leave. Oh, OK. Um, and, you know, they're really encouraging and helping us find different roles after we left. Um, so I used a lot of their network and uh, even had one on one meetings with the deputy CIO about where I wanted my career to go. Mm. Um, and, you know, the deputy CIO at the time was a little bit more of a risk taker than I would say most people are mm. and said, hey, you know, this is your one shot opportunity to try to go to the buy side and what it's like to be on the other side of the table. You can always go back to endowment investing. But, you know, if you stick with endowment investing for now, it's a lot harder to go to the buy side when you're 30, 32, et cetera. So shoot your shot. And if you don't like it, you'll have a different perspective that most people on the LP side have, um, which is definitely unique and great. But if you do like it, then you could stay on the buy side and you'll always have that on your resume. Mm. Um, so actually, um, the group that I ended up joining um, was a group that we looked at investing in. Mm. So I had a little bit of a cheat sheet, unfortunately, <laughs> where I had some of the answers to the test on how they view themselves, how they market themselves. Um, I you know, was able to sit on some calls with their uh, managing partner um, you know, and how he spoke about the firm. So when I saw that they had an investment analyst position open, I was able to kind of had uh, you know, a standing start in the interview process. Mm. And in terms of my roles there, I would say it was uh, primarily sourcing opportunities um, that focused on software. Um, and if, you know, an opportunity gained some legs, uh, doing some due diligence with some senior members on the team to figure out if it would be an interesting investment opportunity based on our criteria or playbooks, um, as well as sometimes doing a little bit of entrepreneurial uh, operations work with some of the portfolio companies because half of our firm is former operators, heads of marketing, sales, customer success. So kind of learning from them and, you know, helping out where I can, where uh, they needed me across the portfolio from time to time. Got it. And can you dive a little bit deeper into what a day in the life might look like? Because I'm sure I think private equity is a kind of esoteric ish industry. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a lot of detail about what each day is like. And to preface, uh, I think probably every day is very different. Yeah. Uh, so any anything you can provide in terms of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I would also say that my experience was a little different in the sense that I joined 
during the pandemic. So I uh, never actually ended up working full time in the office. Mm. Um, so unfortunately, my day was mostly, you know, waking up from my bed, going to my kitchen, logging on to my, you know, uh, workstation, um, then, uh, you know, primarily focusing on, okay, like, let's look at our portfolio. Um, one, are there any portfolio companies that I'm kind of working with right now um, that might need some, you know, operational help? Or um, we talked about possibly rebranding one of the companies because they were uh, looking to merge with an add-on acquisition and, you know, change the name, uh, really focus on, you know, better, um, you know, marketing for what the company actually does. But um, other than that, say like, okay, what are some potential add-on opportunities for some of these portfolio companies? So using tools like Source Scrub or Grata to find different companies across uh, the entire universe, because our mandate was software, but um, you know, outside of that, it was pretty uh, you know broad. So we could look at companies across the globe. Hmm. We looked at you know we owned the company in Cluj, Romania. Or we looked at businesses in Southeast Asia. Mm. Um, so looking at them from the lens of like, okay, does this company meet the certain criteria that we're interested in? Um, does this company have a certain functionality software-wise that could be additive to our portfolio company? Um, and then three, um, do you think you can actually buy this company at a great price? I think a huge misconception in private equity is that there's not enough companies for them to buy or that you know, these groups often allocate capital extremely quickly. At least in my case, there was a huge universe of companies, but in reality, picking companies that met, that um, fit our specific definition of what we were looking for was much more challenging. That, you know, we had a certain tier system of how we looked at companies and not many uh, got turned into the more qualified deals that got people excited about learning more. Mm. So then... Number of hours wise, then like how many hours were you working per week? Um, I would say, you know, around like uh, 65 to 75. It, it just depends um, on the week. Um, I think we had a really good uh, work-life balance at my firm and mm. people were extremely friendly. So um, I think that they were very open to, hey, like, you know, something has come up or I really need to take a day off. Um, but I know that's not uh, oftentimes the case. Got it. And so as you were working in private equity, I'm sure you gained a ton of new skills. Yeah. Um, are there any skills in particular that you got throughout your experience that you really value? And um, yeah, what are some of the key ones that you stepped away from the experience really um, feel like you're very I don't know, fortunate to yeah. have gotten the opportunity to learn? Yeah, I think um, like one skill that I'm really fortunate is the how to really look at a company and look at the nitty gritty details to see what the value is. And mm. more importantly, not in the terms of value for, you know, the post sale, but also where can we find the operational uh, areas that we can improve the company that perhaps other investors might not see. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, when you first start at any job, like especially in an investing job, you think every opportunity presented to you is awesome. You're like, mm. wow, like this is a great idea. Or even at the endowment, like this is a great fund. This is a great fund. Look at these returns. But being able to kind of have those reps and at bats where you can kind of drill down and say, okay, well, let's look at their performance. And oh, well, everything has skyrocketed during you know COVID. And obviously software mostly did pretty well. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of look back historically on 
why this company, you know, struggled before COVID. Um, or, okay, like these, you know, revenue numbers and EBITDA numbers look pretty good. But when you drill down further, they have a huge customer concentration that, you know, you might have overlooked because you're not paying attention to, you know, some of those type of details. Mm. Or they might have really bad retention rates. Um, so kind of, you know, when you originally kind of uh, have all these puzzle pieces and you think it's a beautiful puzzle, but being able to kind of put the pieces together and really see the picture at hand and say, wait a second, this is actually not the picture that I want. Mm. Or, wow, I'm like really excited. I really want to take all these other pieces and see what we can make out of it. And any missing pieces, how can I be helpful and add you know, any type of value to grow the business um, moving forward? Mm. So understanding the nitty gritty details as to what makes a fund or company uh Sorry, I guess it's more on the private equity side. What makes a company actually an attractive investment and really diving deep into the details, Definitely. understanding how to do that. Yeah, I think that's pretty hard to that's a pretty hard skill to kind of gain from any industry, really. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of the viewers out there who are interested in private equity, do you have any tips on how to break into the industry? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it, it is uh, pretty tough. And it's not like I was uh, someone that was getting a lot of uh, job offers left and right in private equity. Um, I would say that it's very much, you know, uh, a hustle type culture. Um, you know, reach out to groups that you're interested in, uh, perhaps not at the partner level, but at the uh, lower levels. And, you know, be additive in your conversations. No one wants to, you know, help someone out when they just email like, hey, can I have a job or how can I get a job? Uh, you really want to be, you know, building these type of relationships by saying, hey, I know you have a company in X space. I read this really interesting article about your company, one of its competitors or even the space in general. I thought you should read it and really not expect anything in return. Mm. And building those type of relationships, I think uh, over time, people will say, OK, this guy or girl is really committed to the space. They really like learning about it they oftentimes are reading about it in their free time and they you know think of me when i uh, when they find something interesting so when i find something interesting whether it be at my firm or somewhere else um you know i'm going to think of them and i think that that's really helped uh, pave it forward a lot so even if you know say my firm passed a company that we didn't think was a perfect fit for us and I would talk to a friend that um, was at another private equity firm that uh, had a similar thesis. I'd be like, hey, you should look at this one. I think that, you know, for X, Y, and Z could be interesting, but candidly, we passed for ABC. And I think, you know, paving it forward, like in anything in life, um, will pay dividends in the end. Mm -hmm. And were there any resources in particular you kind of studied, or did you kind of use your experience from the endowment fund to really kind of already know what to prepare for for your interviews? Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, tried to just read as much as I could um, about, you know, the firm in general, as well as some of the competitor firms. I, I know my case was a little bit yeah, unique because I had some extra access to resources uh, due to my job at the university endowment. But also there's a lot of free resources out there um, that I think are really helpful and whether it be building out models or um, just learning about the you know specific industry itself again i would say that um just having the type of attention to detail and looking at specific areas that uh you're personally interested in will you know help a lot more i don't think you should be you know 
applying to a lot of firms that focus on industrials if you're interested uh, in you know technology related private equity. Mm, got it. And now uh, shifting more towards like our white um, our MBA experience so mm-hmm. far. Um, so Philip can is in Philip is in the Russia track. Yep. And uh, I'm on the Korea track as I mentioned in previous videos. Um, but we're actually working on our master's thesis together. Uh, which is like an 80 page kind of document. And we're both part of the Lauder program, which I've experienced, sorry, which I have kind of explained in previous videos, but as a really short reminder, it's a two year program where you get a master's in international studies and an MBA at Penn. And the master's in international studies kind of focuses on international economics, history, politics, et cetera. And there's a few more like extra classes and things you have to do throughout the entire experience. Um, And you also have to kind of learn a language uh, so I have to learn Korean and Philip is learning uh, Ru- Russian. Mm-hmm. So it's been, uh, well, actually, first of all, like, you know, what got you interested in an, MB- in an MBA overall? And then what got you interested in the Lauder program? Yeah, I mean, I thought that an MBA uh, would really help me uh, crystallize a lot more of the, you know, business uh, like areas that I want to focus on. I think Wharton is really unique in some ways that it's a little more flexible than some other programs like HPS, where you know, if you wave out of some classes or are able to, uh, you know, focus on a certain major, you can, you know, really take classes on areas that you're interested in, um, which is why I thought that if I got into a program like Wharton, um, it would be really beneficial for my career. Mm. Um, and the Lauder program, I think, is really unique and interesting. Um, you know, one, as a heritage speaker of Russian, I candidly am not a good um, writer of the language. So I wanted to improve on those skills. Because I don't know about you, but I never wrote essays to my parents in uh, Russian. I'm not sure about no, you. No, I've only wrote like cards to my parents in uh, oh, nice. for their birthdays. And it's like a kindergartner could have <laughs> written a better card because I have like a ton of spelling errors and stuff. Oh, yeah. wow. Dang. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know how to write Russian uh, very much at all. And in this past month that we've been here, I've had to learn how to write Russian in cursive. So Russian's only oh. written in uh, Cyrillic cursive. Huh. And I just handed in my introduction paper, which is, you know, only two pages, but still that from zero to uh, that, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the progress we can make over two years. Yeah. Um, so And plus the conversations I feel like we're having at Lauder is really unique, especially with how international everyone is. And I think Professor Haas said it best, right? We're all very different, but in a lot of ways, we're very much similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really enjoying my time at the program awesome. and uh, Lauder as well. I got to clarify, by the way, kindergartners and first grade Korean students are really smart. So they like they like can speak really well, like write really well anyway. But uh, focusing back on to your experience so far at yeah. Penn, um, what do you feel like are your first impressions so far? Um, any pleasant surprises or challenges you face? It can be anything in the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, candidly, I'm just uh, surprised how go, go, go everything is. I mean, yeah. right now we're filming and it's you know almost 10 p.m., um, and this whole day I've been just doing either lauder work or work preparing for immersion. And this is a day off. Um, yeah. tomorrow we have a, you know, 7.50 AM, uh, class photo that rolls straight into a night, like 9 AM class. And we end at what? 5 PM. Yeah. Um, and that's with an hour and a half, two hour break. Um, so it's just, you know, constantly doing things, whether it be academic or social, um, that's been a big surprise. I feel like, uh, you know, even in my working life, I 
had a little bit more time to breathe, whether I wanted to take a, a quick, you know, 30 minute run or do some laundry, uh, you know, without weight wash. Um, but now it's, you know, a lot more structured, which is uh, taking some time to get used to. Yeah, and not only do we end at five tomorrow, we also have final next day and two, or I have to write two essays. I don't know, you might, yeah. I have to write one longer one. We actually have the 5.30 uh, review session. Oh yeah, so we have our day ends at 6.30 tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's, it, there's a ton that comes at you at once. Um, and do you have any plans of what you wanna do short-term after MBA or maybe long-term in your career? Have you had any thoughts about that? Yeah, so um, after the private equity firm, I actually joined a consulting firm in their strategy and performance practice. Uh, to really get a better insight on how like the operations of some you know companies work as well as you know what it would be like to work with some c-suite executives on a more one-on-one -on -one basis um, because my ultimate goal is to actually start a search fund mm -hmm. and acquire a business primarily in the software space uh, really you know that's twofold one um, I think that I'd love to use some of the lessons I've learned from you know consulting private equity uh, wake wash in general um, you know, all my other, you know, career uh, stops to grow a business. Um, but also I want to work in software where I can hopefully use some of my Russian language skills with developers that are primarily based in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that will be possible, I'm unsure. But I mean, if I'm able to blend my language with, uh, you know, working in a, you know, a business world where I can acquire a business at, you know, 29, 30, I think that that would be, though a little unique, uh, pretty interesting and different. Mm, and can you actually, <clears throat> excuse me, can you actually help explain what a search fund is? Because I, I don't think everyone knows what that is. Yeah, sure. So um, the search fund model or um, acquisition, uh, sorry, entrepreneurship through acquisition or ETA, um, they are a premise that I believe was started at Stanford Business School, um, where, you know, high achieving young individuals are funded or do a self-funded search and by funded i mean by groups um out you know that are looking for these type of individuals um primarily from mba programs or you know from top flight um you know career um programs as well where they allow them to take some time to find a business do the search portion um if a business fits certain criteria um, everyone is, you know, between the investors and the searcher is in agreement. They end up acquiring the business, installing the searcher as a CEO, um, and having them run the business for a certain amount of time before selling the business down the road. Um, and, you know, the business is owned partially by the searcher with certain step ups in place based on their performance and time, but kind of gives that individual equity and uh, a smaller size company when oftentimes most people would, you know, just be a regular uh, worker for a much larger co corporation rather than having any type of equity uh, whatsoever. So it could be something of interest for people that are interested in entrepreneurship, but might be a little bit skittish on, you know, taking the full time jump and starting something completely from scratch um, and taking something that is already somewhat in place, has a name, has employees, has some customers has you know a little bit of uh, revenue etc and growing it from there somewhat similar of what i did in wake wash but mm. <laughs> i don't think i want to do something laundry related again you <laughs> see all laundried out <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah thanks for explaining because i you know i had heard of search funds before i think it's a really really cool opportunity for a lot of people but it's something that not a lot of people know about 
Um, but now kind of uh, going more towards some personal-ish related questions just so the viewers can get to know you a little bit better. Um, first one is, if you could go back in college, your former self, like what kind of advice would you give yourself? Um, I think that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people say this, um, you know, don't stress too much. I think that oftentimes people go on this like hedonistic treadmill where they are looking at a goal, whether it be getting into a college or getting into an MBA program or getting X job. And they don't really think about, okay, what happens afterwards? They're like running towards the school and they aren't completely satisfied for, you know, life after that goal is achieved. They have to figure out some another goal and it's constantly not being able to sit down and appreciate what you have. Um, because, you know, like I said, when I, when I first uh, went to college, I had no idea what a university endowment was. Mm -hmm. um, if you told me in college or, you know, in high school or even at UVA that I'll spend five years of my life in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> uh, you know, a city I had visited once before because my best friend went to Vanderbilt, I would say, you're kidding me. Like, there's no way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that even though, you know, you might not, um, you know, follow a direct path, you know, I think that everything kind of happens for a reason. And as long as you are cognizant of why you're doing something and why you are excited about it, rather than saying, I want to achieve this goal because everyone says it's, you know, worth achieving this goal, um, then I think things will hopefully work out for the best. Mm. Got it. And kind of related to that note, I think there's a lot of kind of values you mentioned as you kind of explaining of like having gratitude and I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm. but do you feel like you have any personal values that really have guided you throughout your entire experience that allowed you to not really focus on the hedonistic treadmill or um, kind of maintain that focus on being grateful? Um, what's been kind of like your compass throughout not only your career, but your personal life? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a really good like tidbit from Arnold Schwarzenegger um, that talks about how he hates uh, being called a self-made man mm. because, you know, no one's a self-made man. There's so many people out there that open doors for you, that give you these type of opportunities um, that you really should be, you know, thankful for them. Um, so that's really, you know, allowed me to kind of think about things of like, okay, like how can I pave it forward for other people? Or, you know, even in my regular day-to-day -day life where I, you know, try to stay in touch with people and obviously it gets harder and harder as you get older. Um, just saying, okay, you know, if I find something interesting, like let me send it to them and let me, you know, reach out to them and find a way to, whether or not it's actually useful for them, just stay connected. Um, and it kind of goes back to, you know, not being a self-made man. You're, you'd be surprised the type of responses that you get from other people. Um, even when I posted about, you know, getting into an MBA program, people I had never, you know, heard from for years would reach out and say, hey, like I used to live in Philadelphia or my friend lives in Philadelphia. Let me tell you about XYZ restaurant. Um, and it's just super cool to see um, so many people being able to, you know, give back to you after you, you know, just randomly reaching out to them or just saying, hey, like, you know, I want to just help you out because I noticed that you're, you know, living an experience that either I went through or I know someone going through as well. And that's been awesome. Mm. Um, but that actually concludes the interview. Um, Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much, Philip. Uh, we went through, what is it, private equity, endowment funds, consulting. MBA, consulting, uh, laundry. <laughs> so <laughs> we went through a lot of stuff and uh, hope you all found it very useful. 
and we'll catch you hopefully in the next video. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Peace. Bye.